Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. We host discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. This week, we took the show on the road. We went up to Wallsburg, which is just north of Provo, and we visited the studio of Linda Curley Christensen, one of the most uh, prolific and important artists in LDS culture that you probably have never heard of. That's because she is responsible for doing hundreds of monumental landscapes for LDS temples all over the world. We sat down with Linda and her husband to talk about her process and how she got involved in the commissions for doing multiple LDS temples for the past 20 years. Uh, so with that, uh, enjoy our conversation with Linda Curley Christensen. Well, it is a pleasure to be here in Wallsburg, where your studio is, the the center, the nerve center of this enormous, factory isn't the right word, studio. It's something that we're going to talk about, the process that you go through and this enormous infrastructure you've built up. But we are very happy to be here with Linda Curley Christensen. Welcome. Thank you. And we also have here on the sidelines, in addition to Eric Biggert, who's always here producing the show, we have Greg Christensen, Linda's uh, husband, who's who's here too, who may, who may jump in occasionally because he's an integral part of this uh this very, um, th- th- this very um, complicated and uh, infrastructure that's been built up here. Um, I keep using this word almost like we're talking about architecture, but let me just like, I- I- my head is full of questions. We've just taken a tour of the studio that you have here. And there were, I counted, um, at least five artists that were here at this time, um, at this m- particular moment. But when we talk about the work that you're doing now, you are perhaps the most prolific painter um, who's working in the LDS world now and maybe one of the least known by name, but the most seen. That sounds like a really crazy riddle, doesn't it? It Almost like a Greek riddle that was given. So which artist is the most (laughs) prolific, the most seen, but least known um, by name? And the answer would be Linda Curley Christensen, because you are doing hundreds and have done hundreds of murals, predominantly for um, LDS temples around the world. What is the average size that you're working on? I'd say the average would be 10 feet tall by 100 feet. By 100 feet. If you count all four walls. Right. And that's how you have to think of these things, is that even though they're broken up between walls, you're doing a room at a time as a total piece. Right. Now, I'm I'm a little mind-boggled. We couldn't take pictures of things that were in there because the nature of temples and working on temples... And this is what I mean by the most seen, but maybe one of the least known, is that um, when you do work for a temple, it's subsumed into the larger work of the temple itself. It's not an art gallery that's going into, it's going into a temple. And um, I, my question, I guess, is when it comes to that, is how, how often do people know it's your work? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> I have no idea. I hardly ever get to to know how people respond to the work. Yeah. There is one story that 
that we cherish because we did get a little bit of response from someone. It was um, in Meridian, Idaho, after the murals had been installed. There's two rooms, each done by different painters. One was David Mickle, and the other one was painted by myself and my team. During the time that we were there, the, the uh, stonemasons were also there. One of the uh, the owner of the the stone company took in um, someone to see the murals, and he didn't ask him, which one do you like better? He said, how does this room make you feel? Mm. Which was an interesting question when it comes to a piece of art. How does it make you feel? Anyway, um, the fellow was not a member, and having his first introduction to temples. So how he felt was an an even more interesting question. But he said about my room, in this room, I feel like I'm surrounded by people who love me, like I'm coming home. Wow. That's an interesting feeling when here is a, a, a huge room full of artwork that's designed to represent God's creations, which were done because he loves us so much. Interesting. You know, it reminds me a lot of, I, I would, it reminds me a lot of things that John Hafen would write about um, landscape art. He was one of the Mormon art missionaries at the turn of the century and helped do some of the first murals that were ever done in temples. And he talked about landscapes as a sign of God's love and of, because they were God's creation, um, it was the highest form of art, which kind of flips on its head this idea of, uh, <laughs> Of, of what the acad- the academy traditionally from the Renaissance on talked about landscapes being on the lower rung because they're not, and the highest <laughs> rung is filled with allegorical, mythological, religious scenes. So let me, let me get to a very practical side of making this art before we get to, um, before we get to um, some of the more philosophical questions I've got about working on temples. Um, but if there's philosophy that works on it too, that's all right too. It's 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 the question of soup to nuts from the beginning of a process of working on a temple to the final installation. Where do you begin when you're about to work on a particular temple? You're gonna laugh, but I go to Google Earth. I need to fly over the area. <laughs> I need to see what the geography looks like. Isn't technology amazing that you can do this? It you, is. You, it's and, phenomenal. And I've, I spent about an hour on Google Earth yesterday doing some research myself, and I was amazed at all the different kinds of angles and elevations I could get at. So let's say, for example, you're doing a temple in, I don't know, give, give me a place that, you, that you've worked on that you feel comfortable talking about. And I know that there's some, we're not going to go into mm-hmm. to, to anything that would give away the, that, that would make anybody in the church department uncomfortable, hopefully. <laughs> but give me a process of a particular temple that you've worked on recently or in the past so many years? Um, Philadelphia. Okay, so Philadelphia, which is one of my favorites. I think it's a lot of people's favorites. It's won a lot of international awards for its design and so forth, which I'm sure you were a part of that. So Philadelphia, here's this well-known American city, right? And it's in the middle of a cosmopolitan area. When you're doing the interiors of a Philadelphia temple, what are... what? landscapes are you trying to pull out of Pennsylvania? 
I traveled from Pittsburgh to Pencil or to Philadelphia, okay. across the state, and then up and down, looked at the geography across the whole state, and basically started following hiking trails, Interesting. so that I could see, learn the history, and learn learn the beauty of the geography. So when you do when you do that, do you start sketching immediately? Well, I take lots of photographs, um, and I do sketches. I'll do. It's interesting because I kind of have an idea of what types of places I'm looking for, and intuitively feel drawn to those. Interesting. What are they? What types of places are you? Looking? Can you articulate it, or is it more of a gut reaction? Well, because the um, words of Isaiah get thee up into a high mountain. Mm-hmm have so much influence upon what I choose and, and what I want to portray. Um, I'm always drawn to the views first, the high places. So when you go to those high places, do you end up, you're going to have people that come into these spaces who you may never hear from, right? Because they don't know that you've painted it. And also there's, it's not like a, uh, there's not a suggestion box at the end of an endowment session. <laughs> <laughs> or a reaction box. Right. And, but but I assume that in your mind, you've kind of got this person who's going to be seeing it. And they're going to, to say, oh, that looks familiar potentially, that space. Artists, when they're, they're artists are, all, are often allowed to indulge in some fantasy about what a place is and be able to play around with it. How true to life do you have to be and observational <laughs> versus being able to play around because with the composition, it makes more sense. How, what's the balance between reality versus artistry in your interpretation? I'm very stubborn when it comes to refusing to paint something how it is literally. Okay. And it, this was a feeling from the very beginning that I don't want someone to feel like they recognize it and can go there and be there because symbolically and literally the temple is is something totally outside of our world out of our experience that's interesting it's really interesting conceptually because it does now this is my art history wonk side of me that thinks about this idea of plato um and when we're talking about plato and his ideas about art he would often say that don't get too close to what reality is because the, the truth lives in a higher plane and we need to be trying to go for that higher plane, which can often be more about imagination than it can be about what is net right in front of us and observable. But, you know, if I look at your works, they don't look imagined. So there's, it's, it's a, it's interesting that you have this, this real, that, 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 that I would, if I wouldn't have guessed that answer, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, but you do these sketches, you go to these physical places and it's some, and are you doing it in immediately in color or are you doing it with, in, in, as a grisaille? What are you Um, working on? Pencil. You're working in pencil. I'm pencil and photograph. Okay. And then what? Then I spend a lot of time just in pondering and prayer and I get a sense of, of a color and it's the oddest thing. When I very first started painting murals, I thought that the Lord would show me literally what to paint. Hmm. And I thought, well, I'd better, 
I better approach it with fasting and prayer and and I'll fast until I get started and, and until I get the answer and can get started. Hmm. But after an all day fast and no answers, I finally said, Heavenly Father, I'm going to be too weak to paint if you don't show me something pretty soon. And the answer was so profound to me. It was all of the things that you've chosen are beautiful to me. Hmm. So it's this idea that it's it's you choose among them, right? Yeah. You you get you've got to be proactive in deciding where you're going to go I with this. I absolutely am, but I do get a sense of color. I'll be drawn to a particular color palette. Yeah, there's this. Have you ever heard of synesthesia? That that uh, is this idea that people can see sound in color. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's called. Even if you didn't know the term, but it's it's this notion that even when you're a baby, there's there's a confusion between the brain's receptors and the different senses. So you can touch a baby and maybe they'll hear it as a sound, or you can talk to the baby and they'll see color. And for some adults, that color has maintained an important part of the senses. So <laughs> for me too. So I, for you too. Most words have color for me. That's interesting. I see. I never really thought about that as a as an artist but if if you were when i look at your works and we're surrounded here we're in one of the places where you have easel paintings that are surrounding us not big murals and if i had to choose a linda curly christensen palette i don't know if i could there's a lot of variety in these works and that seems to me something that is hard to do as an artist it's easy to fall back on on a color scheme regularly do you have to work hard at that when you're doing so many large projects to make sure that your colors are different or is that just a natural consequence of this process? It must be a natural consequence. I've never worked hard at it, but every temple has a completely separate and new palette. So you have to at one point submit these studies to a temple because the way that this works, and we won't go into all the details of it. I've done that in other shows and in articles and so forth. But at some point you have to submit... Um, a, a prop, uh, things that you propose to to a temple committee, which has all kinds of considerations, and they're sometimes thinking about other artists. What do you submit to them? What do they like to see at at, at the earliest stage? And is it you've already gotten to this point a temple name? You've gone and started creating these sketches in black and white, and then a color comes to you, um, and and you start working with that color palette. What are you submitting to that? The bureaucracy at this point. <laughs> they want to see a small oil painting or a study. I usually call them a sketch mm -hmm. for each wall presented on a 24 by 36 piece of foam core so okay. that they can fit it in, the, I don't know, in their space or whatever. But Do you have exact measurements at this point? So I will take the um, 24 by 36 dimension and then fit the dimension of the room. Okay. taken from the elevations that come from the architects. And proportionally, that's what determines the size of the painting. Do they see it as a digital image first? Or do no. they see it they see it as a physical thing that you've yeah. that you've painted yourself? You have at some point a large retinue of people who are working with you to create the ultimate work. Are is anyone other than you involved at this stage? Not generally. Not generally. So generally this is this is you working kind of isolated on the, in the creative process in working in something. Now, let's skip a whole lot of steps 
of it going through the, 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 the process of being approved. Let's say that your design has been approved and now you've got this monumental process to work on. How do you upscale those sketches? Practically, what happens? Oh, it's very easy. We use a grid. Okay. Um, the grid is placed over the studies with thread or string so that we divide it into small grids. They're always eight tall, no matter what the height. I always divide it into eight. It's very old mastery of you. That's an old, that's an old master <laughs> process. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and then whatever the, the width of that height is, divided in eight is the width across. What is the, uh, uh, how much can these things change once, once you're upscaling them? Cause there's got, I got to imagine that Linda's starting at the beginning of the process. Like, I, I mean, in your early in your career versus now in your career, you've got a really good idea of what something looks like when it's going to be scaled up. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, maybe you didn't. Is that would that be accurate? Yes, to an extent. Um, the part that stays the same is is the composition and the color scheme, the the relative values of each area. The thing that differs is that when you get it blown up to mural size, room size, you need a thousand times more information. There's a thousand times more detail. It's almost like being able to look into that painting with a microscope and. Yeah. And seeing the bees on the flowers and the ladybugs crawling up the stems and the So what do you do to get that information? That additional information included. <laughs> Hundreds of photographs, thousands of photographs. You've got a team of people who often work with you on these things. I mean, you have to to work in this scale. And I to, to get it done on the timeline that they would like it done. <laughs> what is your typical timeline? You know, sometimes it's as short as three months and sometimes it's two years. So describe your crack team. This is kind of like the uh, A-team montage for any film, right? <laughs> of, of we go to one person and I don't know if you want to name names, feel free to. But who are, who are the specialists on your, your who who's on your team? What do you rely on? <laughs> well, I've had different apprentices over the years and sometimes they stay with the team and sometimes they move on and and into their own artwork. So um, currently, Natalie Crossley is kind of the studio lead painter, if you will. She's been there the longest. She'd be the equivalent of the journeyman. She'd be the go. Van Dyke to your Rubens. Okay. <laughs> so Natalie knows the process from the beginning to the end okay. very well. And if I need to be gone for a day or like right now for this interview, mm -hmm. um, she's... She's in charge and everybody knows that they can go to her and she'll give them direction. Is it pretty typical that you're there most days? Yes, it is. So you're once once you've got a project that you've you you've involved the team in, you stay involved throughout it. You don't move on immediately to the next one. No, I stay involved, very involved. Okay. Um I believe that the work of building people is far more important than the work of painting a mural. Interesting. So tell me, what do you mean by that when it comes to working with the team? Well, I believe that teaching them and helping them grow and develop as an artist is far more important than finish the painting. So I give them assignments that will push them and develop them and help them become better painters.
We've just initiated a training program that um, in the beginning of the day, we start our day with a devotional, a scripture, prayer, um, thought, and then we um, move into a five to 10 minute art exercise. Interesting. So today we were sketching the um, celery fields, the A.B. Wright painting. An A.B. Wright painting. And why did you have this A.B. Wright painting? Can you tell us? Yes, I can. I'm excited to study his work because we're recreating a room, muraled room, for the Mesa Temple. A.B. Wright is one of my favorite artists of all time. i got to stay hard to not be geeky about it. Um, i got to be careful (laughs) because he he was um, trained initially by Harwood and then he, J.T. Harwood, and he was the second wave of artists that went to France to study. He was very good friends with Mahan Rai Young. And he goes to the Academy Julien in France and he comes back and he becomes the head of the um, department at the, at the University of Utah. And he teaches a lot of artists, including Lee Green Richards. And he's part of the second generation that's doing temple murals. What... It's it, when you're th- this brings up a whole other question, and I'm going to go there. I'm going to go with it for a moment, which is sometimes it's not just called upon to do original work that is entirely new in conception. But we're now at a stage, I guess the church has always been this way, that some things need rehabilitation or replacement in in older temples. Um I mean, paintings aren't like carpet that need to be replaced every three to five or seven years or whatever it is, but they occasionally need cleaning or replacement if the damage is that severe. And you've gone from this role where you're conceiving of things to now your work is going to be seen in the same place as some of A.B. Wright's style, right? So I hope that we can paint it in a way that no one will even comprehend that it wasn't painted by him. Interesting. That's interesting. That's so, one of the things that strikes me about you and your work in general is this, I, the word um, that I don't think is, is uh, right, but I'm going to use it anyway, is, is sub, I guess it is right. It's subservience to a larger ideal, right? If you're, we're, we're so obsessed in our 20th and 21st century minds with this idea of an artist as a genius <laughs> who is, whose name is on a marquee on, and, and, and who has gallery shows dedicated themselves. That this idea, which is much older, of the artist as a craftsperson whose work is part of a greater whole and a larger project, is is somewhat foreign to us. That 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 your painting isn't signed every time, or that a musician's name isn't put on it. But it, I and I don't know what the question is there, but it's, I guess the it's it's this idea of how, you are unlike most artists in the sense that your anonymity is maintained even stylistically when you're working with somebody like A.B. Wright. Is that something that you've had to come to terms with, this idea of not <laughs> on some level? And it's okay. Uh, in the beginning. I'd like, to, I'd like to see the Barbra Streisand, the egomaniacal <laughs> Linda Curley Christensen come out in this interview, which I've never seen. Probably doesn't uh, exist. When I, when I very first talked to the church architect, who was Lee Gray at the time, he said, you're, you will never be known. Your paintings will never be seen. Can you do that? And I thought about it for a while and decided I could I could do that. But in the day, we still got to sign the paintings or the mm. murals. The murals were signed in that point. They were they were by um, even people like uh, like uh, Hafen would 
sign his and then he would sign his studies and he would give them away to leaders of the church or sell them in in uh it's something I there there is some element of that right that was going <laughs> so on so the then. first probably five years of mural painting and i think i probably did 10 or 12 murals in that period of time were signed yeah. and every painter that worked on it signed it well i don't but know now about... they don't they asked us not to sign them anymore that very first one was Helsinki, Finland. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to sign this. This needs to be signed. How can it be finished if I don't sign it? How can I walk away from this if I don't sign it? Well, and I am so biased <laughs> on this question because I, as an art historian, you want to, I want to know, it, I want to be, I want a breadcrumb trail. Right. And it's not even for me so much about, um, it's not about ego as it is just about historical accuracy and record keeping. I mean, that's a big part of it for me. So I signed the mural when we installed it, and I felt so guilty for it that I went in and took it out the next day. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? That's and fascinating. I haven't had any any feelings about needing to sign it anymore. You know, it's it's such a it's such an interesting concept that I've wondered about a lot when it comes to Mormon culture in general. Is um, Oh, I got to be careful not to talk too much because I'm really excited about the projects that you're doing and and how they fit historically into a larger idea. If you were if you were working in the big building projects of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, there were people who were like you. you I don't know anybody else who's quite like you that is alive today. I know people who were like you in the 17th century. I know about Luca Giordano, who had the name Va Presto or Fa Presto, which literally meant goes fast because he could do, he could do, um, he was painting with buckets. Um, the great palaces of Europe like El Escorial and he's doing the palace in Madrid and he's going to England and he's doing Buckingham Palace. So he's not even tied to a particular location. He would show up and he'd have a team of 30, 100 people who would work with him and sometimes he'd, they would tell him that he has to work with a local talent to do it. And he would be required in six months to do you know, 600 square feet of a ceiling. And, and the question, one of the questions that I would have for Luca Giordano that I, that I would love to ask, and I'm going to ask him through you is the question of what is the relationship between it being an artwork and an architectural space, right? It's this notion of how do you, your work is not seen as an individual object, right? It's always seen in context. So you only have so much control over the space that it's seen in, right? Even to the point that in modern temples today, we're looking at a video in a dark lit room and then lights go on and off. So people often see your work when they come in or when they leave. Your work is, uh, is, is uh, it's part of a greater whole. It's a moving part. Versus if you were an, if you were a, uh, if you were an artist, putting an easel painting on a studio wall of a art gallery, it would be see, it'd be seen as the star and you'd be having a conversation about it. How do you calculate, and over time, how have you seen your works as part of the greater whole? That is a very long entree into that, that larger question. I guess I want to tease out this idea of the, how do you, how do you, uh, and maybe it's the difference between the first works in Helsinki versus the work you're doing now. 
what is what is your mentality of oh we're doing this huge piece and it's got to fit practically into an architectural setting and it may not be the star of the show well i have to trust that the architects have done a good job and just just focus on what i can contribute one of the one of the differences though between a mural and an easel painting is that so often um, I have to create a, a harmonious world so that when, when the viewer walks into the room, they feel a sense of reality in space. It, sometimes it's very interesting to paint a painting when the canvas is flat before you, but I know that there'll be a corner right there and I have to change the direction of the light. So I'm painting six feet with lighting coming directly at me. And from that point, my next 20 feet are going to be light, side lighting. So I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how it's going to wrap around the viewer to create a room. To, do, it, to do that, do you have to go physically? And is it, does some of this change, ever change after you've installed the canvases? No. No? Not really. So do you show up in the physical space or do you have 3D models? How do you do that? Well, you've seen the studies and yeah. how I can set them up in the room. Yeah, and, and, and we and will have an image it. of that on designartsociety.org that shows a you've got these foam board recreations that you do that actually create three-dimensional space that you're, yeah. that you're putting them on. How, has, has, your, has your spatial intelligence changed from the first temple to now? And absolutely, absolutely. How has it changed? Um, you, you just think about the world in a, in a completely different way. So instead of thinking about creating um, a 3D space on that flat piece of canvas, I'm, I'm trying to create something that actually can wrap around a person. Interesting. Interesting. If you're, it's much more, and it, it, I was telling you before, my temple is the Draper Temple and the Timpanogos Temple. I'm really closer to the, to the Draper Temple where I live in Alpine. And that temple, sorry architects for saying this, is, is it feels somewhat oppressive in its, its lack of lighting in the interior. There are very few windows. It's this monolithic block of space, which on the outside, it's, you know, it's, there's nothing quite like it. It's an interesting building. And it's not until I get into the endowment rooms where you have these groves of trees that feel immersive that I immediately feel like I can breathe again. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. I'm sorry architects were involved and I'm sure that some of you are listening. Your paintings make that space livable for me and are transportative. They take us to a completely different era. era. And isn't it amazing how um, creation gives us so much comfort. Yeah. I do wonder sometimes how you chose the time of year and how you choose those <laughs> kinds of things. Cause I mean, and I don't have problems with it at all. I just wonder like these are very practical decisions, right? So I could go to it in winter and feel comfortable with it. Or I could go to it in spring or summer. And feel, how do you deal with that? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's, I don't know. You it's don't. just a feeling that I have when I start. Interesting. Okay, so I've been very wonky up until this point. I want to get to some of the questions about how you even got into this. Mm. And I know you've told me this before, how, how you started. But what are, when did you start as a painter? Not just for the church, but period. When were you, what, what was the earliest 
kind of work you were doing and where did you learn to paint? My very first oil painting was in the third grade with a leftover paint by number paint from my grandmother. Okay. I painted a bear. <laughs> it was very impressionistic. <laughs> Do you still have it? You know, I think the pa- the type paper that I painted it on disintegrated a long time ago. There yeah. might be a, 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 a skin of paint left in the portfolio. I haven't looked for years to see if it's there or not. Did, your, uh, did, did you come from an artistic family? My grandmother decorated everything within her reach with fabric paint or embroidery or hmm. oil paint. Um, never achieved a great skill level, but... I thought they were beautiful as a so child. So beauty and it was an approach. It was this idea that things need to be made beautiful Adorned. and you can be involved in the craft of it yourself. <laughs> yeah. Did you um did you get formal education after that? I found art so easy that I assumed everyone could do it. It hmm. it was probably 6th grade by the time I realized that the other kids weren't doing what I was doing. Mm. And I thought maybe they were just lazy. Maybe they just didn't want to take the time because it takes a lot of time yeah, to yeah, do art. So I assumed that they just didn't want to. It wasn't until more like middle school when I started to be given awards and um, invited to, to extracurricular classes and had a little scholarship for a figure painting Hmm. class that I Where went did you to and in Holiday area, Murray and, Holiday. And Holiday is a pretty um, educated and cosmopolitan area, you know, for a lot of people. But it's also not New York, right? Right. So were, did you have, were your parents and art teachers key in this these choices or were you just like a rocket? My, um, my perception of oil paint at that time was that it was sticky and nasty. I had brushes from my grandfather that were very, very short-haired. I didn't even know that he gave me his worn-out brushes. I thought they were a special kind. <laughs> was your grandfather a painter? So this was um, my father's father, and yeah. he also painted a, a little bit amateurish and yeah. didn't ever achieve any great skill level. And the jar of oil that my grandmother gave me, I, I never could get the lid off. It was stuck. <laughs> I didn't know you added oil to oil bait. So kind of a kind of a, a homegrown artist, if you will. But because I didn't like oil paint and I assumed this was something everybody could do, I didn't ever have any desire to be an artist. I wanted to be a doctor. Hmm. So did you go which route did you go down? How did what did your educational path? <laughs> look like um i ended up marrying young and starting a family and and at that point painting became a practical need i couldn't afford to go buy a piece of art and i liked good art so i so decided i'd your, just paint it and it was for your own home for your own con- yeah. your own use yeah what were you painting i just started painting some landscape things and something beautiful how did you go from painting from yourself to would it be fair to say your first big commission was doing the conference center at the time of its construction? Or was there something before that? I don't even know if the conference center was a big commission, but um, it was interesting. I had a, a cousin, my husband's cousin, invited me to an oil painting class. Here I am, a, a newlywed, and expecting my second 
baby. So I guess I wasn't a newlywed, but, um, I didn't want to go. I just kept saying, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to take a class. I don't want to do it. I don't have time. And why, why didn't you want to? Was it like I an just, emotional commitment to the idea of doing it? Doing a piece of art from my wall was easy. It was not a big deal, but I didn't feel like I needed to go study this. I didn't need to go take a class. And she twisted my arm, offered to give me her, let me use her brushes, pay for my class. She just thought it would be fun. <laughs> she she made it impossible to say no. Absolutely. <laughs> what I found in that class was an eye-opening treasure you add oil to oil paint to make it flow. It became a medium that was exciting, exhilarating to use. Hmm. I adored it. Do you I, remember who the teacher was or was it just... Yes, it was a lady from California. Her name was Bev Myers. And Bev she Myers. taught what is called a paint-along method, something like a Bob Ross almost. Yeah, yeah. Fast. With happy little trees, fast. Uh -huh. and It's interesting. I, I learned the... Um, long-haired brush, the fan brush, the, the script brush, all of these tools that had never been available to me. I'd even cut, bought new brushes and cut the hair off from them because I thought they were supposed to be short, like grandpa's. Grandpa would only give me the best, right? So your arsenal, <laughs> it's, it's that old joke of why do you cut the ends off the roast? There you right? go. <laughs> I'll make exactly. everybody look that one up. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh. So, yeah, but I, I never stopped painting after that. I painted every single day just for the pure pleasure of it. Are you looking at other artists at this time? Is there anybody who you're who who you had in your oh, pantheon? Yes. Of... I loved the paintings of Dalhart Winberg. I thought they were so he's, beautiful. He's in Logan, isn't he? I don't even know. I have to think of, so I'm thinking of Winborg, and there's a father and son that are up there. Maybe I've got a different name. So where did you see his paintings? I remember he was um, exhibiting at a library that I went and saw his work, and I thought they were so beautiful. Photorealism. Hmm. But I loved the depth and the layers. And then I found out that um, Floyd Breinholt was one of my father's relations. Hmm. I, and I really liked his work, and I got excited about that and about the idea of layering and glazing and transparent versus opaque paint and... Um, so you're, you're tinkering on your own I just, and you're messing I'm around with it, trying to figure it totally out. Totally self-taught. But within six months of my first oil painting class with Bev Myers, she's left the state and they asked me if I'd be the teacher. Interesting. I have no training, but I could, I could lead a person through a painting. So are you, are you, um, just be, and this often happens with people who are required to teach is that is a whole nother level of increasing your arsenal because you are pushing yourself to be good for the students. Yeah. Is that what's happening? And solving all of their problems. I, I couldn't have even gotten myself into as many problems as they got into. Interesting. So I definitely had a lot of experience solving problems. When you look back at those early paintings, what do you think you were good at and what do you think you're better at now? I was pretty good at design and color harmony. But I'm much better at seeing the depth and creating a complexity of, of um, the paint on the surface, the, the textural and the, the transparent and the ethereal, the atmosphere. Interesting. Was there always, see now when you talk about your art, it's inseparable from a spiritual element. 
and, and the way you feel. And and that's one of the reasons why you're so ideally suited for the kind of work you do. Back then, did it did, did you have that same spiritual mission as part of her, or was it more of a hobby? Totally hobby. Totally hobby. I sold my first oil painting about a year after this. It was a 24 by 36 for $75. I felt like I had robbed a bank. I was giddy happy and totally guilty. I'll, I'll buy I'll buy a, a Linda Curley Christensen for $75. I could hardly believe that someone would pay so much money for something that I had painted. It was addictive. Wow. So did you, okay, so I, w- I want to I wanna kind of um, jump ahead to how you were, you became a painter in the church system. And I, and that's a, I know that's an imperfect way of saying it, but you know, the church, um, and for those listeners who aren't very familiar with this, um, your timing of being involved with the church is, in my opinion, pretty miraculous. The church went through this period where, at, at the, even when they were building the Salt Lake Temple, there wasn't really thought about what to do with visual art. Um, they'd been building it for 38 years, and John Hafen writes them on thir- year 38 and says, you know, the outside looks pretty good, and you've got a lot of decorative elements, but you don't have anybody who's an artist that's at the quality we need to do the interiors. So why don't you send four of us to France? And the church sends them to France. They go for a year. They come back, and they paint the interiors of the temple. And you have these... Then they go back and they paint the other temples that had already been built. They paint Logan, they paint Manti, they do they do St. George, this team of early more art missionaries. And then you have a few other temples that are built in this early generation, like Cardston, Hawaii, um, Twin Falls, Idaho, Mesa. Mesa. These are all done within that first era. And then there aren't a lot of temples that are built until the 60s. And by then, in that international style, there are a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, there isn't a lot of painting or decorative elements that go on with them. You have kind of this international style of Provo, Ogden, um, DC, which does have some painting in it, but for the most part, and Switzerland, which don't have painting as part of it. And then President Hinckley comes along. And President Hinckley, he has this ambitious building project, and I don't think a lot of people have thought about the idea that that he reinstitutes, hearkening back to a hundred years earlier, the idea of a of painting in the temple, of of large, large landscapes and and murals. You happened to be there at that time, when that happened. How did that those two sides meet up of Linda the the painter, and the great building program going on at the same time? I'll pick up where I left off just starting to oil paint and quickly jump forward. I taught for about eight years, and I realized that I never pushed myself, that I only solved the problems that other people came up with, but I never pushed myself. Hmm. So I quit teaching and began to look for a mentor. I found a mentor in Peter Paul Forrester who had just returned from the South Pacific where he had been the head of the art department for BYU, schools of the South Pacific. He came back to Utah to um, bring his wife for medical care. She had cancer. And 
by an anonymous phone call. I still to this day do not know who it was. Someone called me and said, you should go meet this artist that's just moved to Utah and see if you can get him to do a lecture for the Intermountain Society of Artists. I was the education director, volunteer position. Hmm. So I called him up. He said, come right now. I went to his home and he spent a couple of hours with me talking about art. And I knew this was the person I wanted to study with. Hmm. What was it about him? Um, I didn't particularly like the subject that he painted often, but I loved the way he talked about art. Hmm. I loved how he felt about it and what he looked for. Interesting. Um, and anyway. by this time, you had your own style, and so style didn't matter as much as ethic. Yeah, I, I uh, saved up my money to take a class from him, and after the class was over, <laughs> I couldn't afford to go anymore, but... <laughs> Mm. He was he was so good and he called me one day and he said, "You know, my wife could really use some help. Would you consider trading? Would you come and help my wife with housekeeping and cooking duties in trade for art classes?" And then you get a one-on-one with him, which I accepted. Um the first time I came, he said, "Where's your where's your art?" I said, "I I came to help clean house." He says, do not ever come here without art. So he and his wife were both um, very artistic. She had been a curator at the Springville Museum of Art. What was her name? Peggy. I knew Peggy. Um, Forrester. Yeah, I knew Peggy. Interesting. So both Peggy and Paul were my mentors, if you will. I helped her finish a weaving project and sew the covers for her sofas. I helped her with some of her sewing projects and with cooking and many, many things. But to have new artwork to take for critique three times a week was a tough challenge oh, for me. It's probably, you're, you're probably working a lot on your own, but on an ego level, it's probably very difficult to, to, to anticipate criticism. Did you, did you find yourself ascending a learning curve? With him pretty quickly? I felt like I couldn't paint at all. He, he'd say, well, what is this? And I'd say, well, those, that's a rock. Well, it looks like a pile of mashed potatoes. <laughs> he, it, I didn't paint anything that so, was worth anything he was for solid, two years. He was solidly of the school of it's better to be, to be, you must be cruel to be kind. He was very cruel. <laughs> very cruel. And he did it intentionally because he was... Um, he wanted to weed out those who were not serious. Interesting. So it, I, I made up my mind I would never be that cruel. Did you ever, if I ever think that you're going to you know, take your paints and go home and never come back? <laughs> did you, it, and, and did your relationship well, with Peggy keep you there? I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened. I, uh, at the same time, was the first church international competition. And I had great desires to paint a scripture verse that I loved. And I laid it out. I, I started it. I knew exactly where I wanted to go. And I finally got brave enough to take it to him for critique. And he was quiet for 10 minutes. And then he said, you need to burn it. (laughs) Mm. He said, and find something easier. You can't accomplish this. This is way above you. 
you think he was right? Or do you think he was just... You know, he was, was absolutely like, right. This wasn't a Mr. Miyagi... But it made me you. so angry yeah. that I took it home. I threw it in the trunk. I got in my car and slammed the doors and peeled out of his driveway and spun gravel up onto his sidewalk. I was so angry. Mm. <laughs> but I painted all night like a mad woman. And I took it back to him the next time I went. He looked at it a long time and he said, well, you've come a half million miles. Wow. And from that point, he was never cruel again, but very supportive and very helpful. He would call me sometimes at four in the morning and say, I've been thinking about that area you want to glaze. Have you tried Indian yellow? Hmm. And I'd say, Paul, it's 4 a.m. Oh, sorry. And then he'd call me back at six, you know, to, to tell me something else he'd been thinking of. And so I'm learning something about you as you're talking about this relationship and about some of the things that, that, that you've experienced. And that's that the, the church and is, is famously a messy process to get a temple built. Not in the sense that I want to make it sound like somebody's doing something wrong, but in the sense that as an artist, you're often, you're often subject to the changes that happen that you're not involved in the decision-making process. Measurements can change, <laughs> subjects can change, a general authority can come in and change the entire color scheme because he likes the subject, he likes the color a little different than he does others. And, and it takes a, a very patient and special person um, and team to not throw up their hands and say, I'm taking my things and leaving and not being a part of this. Um, is, is that an accurate, is that, how, how have you? Well, my grandmother said I was stubborn. Paul told me I was tenacious, which was much better than stubborn. <laughs> tenacious is much better than, than stubborn. So is that a, an accurate, uh, even now as, as the, as you've had a lot of experience with the church and they've had a lot of experience with you is, are, are, are you still, is your work still subject to these kinds of changes? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Do you find yourself sometimes surprised for the better as to some of those changes? Or is it just one of those things like like your spiritual experience where it's like, it could have been a lot of possibilities and it's whatever we went with? <laughs> well, I know who's in charge. Yeah. I know the Lord is in charge of this work and I know that he directs me. And it doesn't matter what the committees choose. If that painting is meant for that space, it will get there. And there are many examples of how that has played out. Do you want to share? Do you mind sharing one with us? Can you? Well, I'm not finished answering the other question okay, about okay. it. But do yeah, you want yeah. me to go finish up with that? Uh, how did I come to this? Or you want to hear a story? I want to hear a story, and then I want to come back to the how you came to this. Um, I was commissioned to do... Uh, three paintings for the Salt Lake Temple, their new marriage waiting area, five foot by 10 foot each. And then that was changed to, well, maybe five foot by five foot and a five foot by 10 foot would be better. Um, anyway, I got started on it. And in the meantime, the designer changed his mind, chose another artist for another piece one of them went in, um, the others that were already in process didn't, didn't go. So you have 
three that were meant to go together and one ends up. So, um, I sold the other two and, um, two years later, the fellow that bought it was having some health issues, asked me if I would help him resell it. So I said, well, sure. I, I don't mind doing that. The very week that he called me, the temple designer called and said, you remember that piece you did for me? Is there any chance it's still available? Anyway, it hangs behind the recommend desk in the Salt Lake Temple, where wow. it was designed to go. Originally. Mm-hmm. And were you working with a, with a new designer at this point? Or was a, it, you know, timing is everything in these kinds of situations, isn't it? I mean, it's really, there's so many moving parts when it comes to these decisions being made and so much pressure put on making a decision that's practical at the moment. That's amazing. That's amazing. I know you've got so many other stories you could share. Okay, let's go back to the original question of how did you come to this? How did I come to this? So yeah. I wanted to just give you um, a quick little view of those that 20 years between when I started painting and when I started doing. Yeah. Um, Eric's, Eric's giving me the eye because we're, we're running we're short on time, time, but we're going to go. We're going to go with it. Tell, tell the stories you're going to oh, do anyway. Okay. So what the reason that I brought up the Paul Forrester is because... When I very first went through the temple as a young woman before I married, I was impressed by the art. But my reaction was, I would never do it that way. That hurts my eyes. And I was looking at a specific spot that was out of harmony. And I don't know if it was a color shift or a repair or whatever, but there was one area that bothered me. Hmm. And that, and from that point, I asked if I would, uh, could I donate a painting to the temple? And no one knew how. But it took 20 years for me to build my skill level to a point where it was worthy. Hmm. And I believe that, that the Lord had a hand in that. And he knows our desires. He, and he brings to us the opportunities that we desire. Were you just submitting works on a regular basis no. to, to someone? No. no. No, I never submitted because no one ever even told me how that could happen, and I didn't pursue it. Did but you I did know pursue when, the art. Did you know when you were ready? So at this 20-year point, and what I time are we found in the... myself as a single mother. I have seven children. My first job opportunity was um, a camp cook job in Wyoming. And I took it. It was $75 a day, and I could take my kids, and I could paint all I wanted in between cooking for this group. It's a trifecta. (laughs) Um, Kids, money, and and, uh, and art, all in one place. There you go. Yeah. So the second camp that I went to was a group of men preparing to build the conference center for the church. And in that group was... They were there at the same camp... Just kind of huddling to talk, getting in a huddle to talk about what's this conference center going to look like? And I was their cook. And uh, Alan Layton of Layton Construction had been my stake president. So he had taken my portfolio out of my van, packed it in his saddlebag to the camp. This Hmm. is up near Lake Alice in Wyoming. And when Lee Gray, head architect of the church, said, I find it no coincidence that I'm looking for the artist who will paint for the conference center, and you're here. So tell me, how will you portray where the church is going in the next millennia? Holy cow. 
my jaw about hit the table and my eyes got wide and I had no words. <laughs> it's also amazing that he's thinking in such broad terms and not just on the media project in front of him, right? It's, he's talking about a millennium and they're there to talk about a project that should be done in the next few years. So after he let me off the hook by moving on with the conversation about where the church is going in the next millennia, he turned back to me and he said, the Lord will inspire. At that point, I went to my tent and I knelt and I said, Heavenly Father, what would you like me to do? Hmm. Because I was newly single, I had seven children, I made the decision that I would pursue art as a career. I had never pursued it as a career. I didn't care about it. I wanted to be a mother. So how many children do you have? Seven. You have seven. You're divorced. And you're taking a camp job to, to, uh, as a cook. And the, the, the very unpractical decision, potentially in some people's eyes, is I'm going to go into art. <laughs> totally impractical <laughs> and crazy. Yeah. But Lee Gray was the one who also the next day said, have you ever thought about painting for temples? And I said, yes, I've always wanted to donate one. How could I do that? And he laughed at me. And I, I was so hurt. I didn't understand why he was laughing, but he handed me his card and said, please call me. Interesting. So it was at that exact juncture that they, the church began to ask for paintings that they could use in these hundred temples they were trying to get when President Hinckley's building so fast. And and yeah. that was that was the the financial salvation for me. I kind of see this this building program with the church and your art growing up together at the same time, in the sense that they couldn't have gone to any artist at any at that time and said, "Okay, I need um, in in a fairly short period of time, I need a bunch of ten foot tall, hundred foot long paintings." I mean, nobody is working in that scale or in that studio. And now um, I'm here, you know, so many years later. Um, how many years has it been since the first project you worked on for, the, for the, the, the Finland Temple versus now? Well, the first temple was Columbia River, Washington, and it was in 2000. 2000. It's 2018. It's 18 years on. How different is the setup you have now from the one that you had then? <laughs> we were painting in the town hall that you passed in Wallsburg, um, still had rolling walls. We had to roll them from the chapel to the <coughs> cultural hall. Mm. So you're... So that's similar. And everything you built yourself. I mean, this isn't something you can get ready-made walls. You and uh, and your husband, <coughs> um, Greg, he's, uh, he's he, he, pretty handy, as far as I understand. And, and you've... Uh, You've built the walls that these are on. They're rolling. I, we can't take pictures of them, but there were one, two, three, four. There were eight when I went upstairs. They were all about 13 feet tall and about 20, long, 20 feet long each, maybe longer. Oh, there's some 40-footers there's in there. There's some 40-footers. <coughs> and how many temples are you working on right mm -hmm. now? Um, one. Two, three, four. Just four right now. Just four right now. What's the most you've ever worked on at one point? I don't know. <laughs> More than five? Know. Yeah, probably. Probably. Well, 
You know, I know that um, we're, we're reaching the uh, the limit of our time, and I've got so many questions. Maybe we'll have to have a follow-up. And I actually would like to have an opportunity where maybe we do an event where we sit down and talk with you about your process, and you can walk us through it. And I think on one hand, there's this idea of here's somebody who who is doing these things that we're experiencing without even um, knowing the process that's gone behind them. But from an, and that's from the, the, the amateur's perspective, but from the perspective of an artist and from an art historian's perspective, what you do, this infrastructure, which is the word that I started off with at the very beginning, it resembles much more of a 17th century major project building going on in Europe idea of doing sacred spaces with very quickly um, with a, a huge intent. Now, Eric wanted me to start, and I'm going to end with this, this question. Eric wanted me to bring this idea in of the icon maker. There's this medieval um, prayer that is, uh, that's, that's, that's been recorded. And I don't know what the source is originally. A lot of uh, medieval manuscript makers and icon makers cited in their materials. Uh, before someone does a sacred work, they have to make sure all their debts are paid. They have to make sure that they've forgiven all of their enemies, that they've been forgiven by by everyone else. They have to say a prayer and they have to ask for the intercession of the saint who they're depicting. You've talked a little bit about this, about this issue you've gone through, about how important prayer is in your process. But I guess I want to end with this question of... Um, you know, on a spiritual level, when you're doing these works, um, how how much are you involving inspiration throughout the process, and how important is that as you're selecting your team? It's important daily. It's important in everything we do, and it's important for every member of the team. Yeah, that's why you start with a devotional. Mm-hmm. Has that always been practice? In the very beginning, we start with prayer, but um, devotional came along, I don't know, maybe maybe a year after yeah. we started. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I, I've got so many more questions I could ask. I'm going to have to end it there. My, my curiosity is only barely being whetted at this point. Thank you so much, Linda Curley Christensen, for being willing to sit down with us and talk to us a little bit about what happens behind the scenes in making these enormous murals. Thank you for letting me geek out a little bit. Thank you for letting me share some of my story. <laughs> I'd like to thank Linda Curley Christensen for inviting Eric Biggert and I to her home for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see some of the works that we discussed and a little bit about the process behind what she does on her, uh, on her, uh, on our website zineartsociety.org under the podcast tab along with information about our current exhibition that's running Certain Women uh, the first ever exhibition dedicated exclusively to LDS women artists which will be on show in Salt Lake until the beginning of April and then it moves down to Heirloom Gallery of Art in Provo until the beginning of May for more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.